0: you're like, oh man, I am in. And if you are into the book of Revelation, you are into the book of Revelation. Like you you got your Bible, that is the one book that has notes all over the margin. You've got charts. You've gone through multiple studies. You've got your favorite authors. You know what YouTube channel is your <laughs> is your favorite, your podcast. Like you, you are into the book of Revelation. You know if you're post-trib, pre-trib, amillennial, premillennial, dispensationalist, if you're preterist, if you're and some of you are like, is he speaking in tongues? Like, with, I'm going to need an interpreter. All right, so you just, you know, like, you are, if you are into it, you're into it. Other of us are kind of like, ah, it's kind of weird. There's a lot of strange language in that book. I'm, I Kind of maybe stay away from it a little bit. Maybe you don't even know it, but maybe you're more of a pan-millennialist. Do you know what that means? Is that you believe everything's just going to pan out in the end? Right. So maybe that's like more your your speed when it comes to to Revelation. And that is true, absolutely. Everything is gonna pan out in the end. But however, maybe there's maybe there's a different way we can we can approach the text between the extremes. Maybe there's something a lot more deeper and richer and more meaningful that God has for us through the book of Revelation. It's an important text that unveils the realities of heaven and earth and the interplay of the physical and the spiritual when it comes to the kingdom of God. For the rest of us, maybe you're not on either side, maybe, maybe like your best understanding of Revelation is more like pop culture, pop Christian culture maybe, like Left Behind series. Like if you've seen, like it wasn't Nick Cage in one of those movies, or you've read the books, like those started coming out in 95. Um, and, and maybe you've read some of those. I had a professor, he said, good fiction, bad theology. And I'm not even sure if it's actually good fiction. Um, but I realize I've probably already offended somebody right now. And that's typically what happens with the book of Revelation. Maybe it's the left behind. Maybe you're more familiar with, uh, what is it, Larry, Larry? Yeah, Larry Norman, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. You heard, heard that song? You can look that up on YouTube later and, and enjoy that. But but what happens is you, you hear about the book of Revelation. Maybe you just kind of get a little nervous. Like, you're not really sure what's going on here. It's kind of it's wild, not understanding. Maybe you have kind of this sense that, you know, um, when it comes to the end times, like, it's just going to be kind of one of these, God is going to jump out of nowhere to get us. And that, that's, that's going to be what, what happens. is some, Sometime, at some point, something crazy is going to happen, and we just have to kind of, we got to hold on for the ride. Um, but if we come away with our understanding of, you know, whether it's Christian commercialized takes or if it's, you know, different... Um, like overzealous views and theologies that, when it comes to the text. If we come away with a sense of fear and anxiety when we read the book of Revelation or we think about the Reve- book of Revelation, we've missed the point of the text entirely. Over many years, Revelation has become a platform for theological disagreement and misunderstanding. However, when John wrote Revelation, his audience would have found it to be about hope and encouragement, and the victory of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So let me just plainly state this as we move forward into the text of Revelation. If you read the letter of Revelation and do not come away more hopeful as a follower of Jesus, then you have misread it. I'll say it one more time. If you read the letter of Revelation and do not come away more hopeful as a follower of Jesus... Then you have misread it. And I really want to encourage you, especially if you have avoided the text of Revelation, I want to encourage you over the next few weeks to actually read the text with us as we move through. Uh, consider reading it more than once because this is one of those texts that require more than one reading to be appreciated, which is true of the entire Bible, by the way. And as we read through the text together as a congregation, there are a few things that we need to keep in mind. The first thing is this I'm going to blow your mind. This is a letter. Ooh, ah, the depth of, of Revelation that you have just given us about the letter of Revelation. It's astounding. Here's why I bring this up. When folks read Revelation, they tend to throw hermeneutics out of the window. So any kind of principle of like, like how we should read the Bible, people, for some reason, when we look at Revelation, we're like, oh, here's the normal way we'd read the Bible. Let's just kind of toss that to the side because here's this really strange, crazy thing. It's much more interesting to say, for example, that locusts or helicopters and that our present-day political enemies are going to threaten our present-day political allies, then to realize that the point of the text is not to be a national treasure-like good fiction, by the way, a national treasure-like secret codex to unlock the secrets of the future. But instead, it's a letter that John wrote to an audience, specifically to seven churches present in seven very significant cities that existed in the Roman Empire, that contained a message that they would have understood to have practical meaning and application for their present day. This is not to say that there aren't principles at work to apply for us and future generations of Christians. There absolutely are. However, John's readers would not have read this and thought that it was only about future events that they couldn't conceive of. Instead, John was writing to encourage the persecuted church with hope, and that message continues to be relevant to us today. Here's what John says in chapter 1, starting in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches." To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. First and foremost, we gotta remember this is a letter written to an audience, and it had meaning from John's authorial intent and to the reader understanding what he was trying to communicate to him. So why is revelation such a mystery mysterious text to us? For a couple reasons. This is a, one is this is a letter written in the form and style of apocalyptic literature. All right, so all of the symbolic imagery and language that we come across that we go from Revelation, we're like, what does this represent? What, you know, what are locusts, really? Well, they're, they're insects. That's, that's what they are. Um, but what, what are these things? Well, apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is symbolism and imagery used to reveal or convey the movement of God and divine perspective on earthly matters. That's, that's, that's what it is. And in chapter 1, we get our first big dose of what this is going to look like and sound like. So if we keep reading after verse 11... We, we see verse 12. I turned, John, this is John speaking, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of his brilliance. I mean, this is, this is kind of wild imagery that we're not familiar with. In fact, here's an artist kind of help us uh, along with this. Here's an artist's rendition of this moment and what it could look like. Um, yep, there's white Jesus. Uh, We're not gonna laugh about that. You know, Jesus wasn't white, right? Do we do we know that? Okay? Okay, as long as 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 long as you know that Uh, so maybe maybe not quite as accurate as they think and he you know Was he every time he turned around was he slicing people's heads off? You know that kind of thing was there a literal sword coming out of his mouth? I don't know maybe you know, this is this is what John is, uh, uh, is Is telling us that he's seeing and observing however there are some things for us to remember remember Apocalyptic literature is symbolic. It's referring to images that are communicating certain truths to us about who who God is and who Jesus is. Remember, for example, that God's word is described as what in the Bible? As a two-edged sword. So we're talking about sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. Well, what, what are the things that come out of our mouth, the things that we say? The text, Jesus, the word who became flesh. We start to maybe put some connections to some of the symbolism and imagery there. As as John is referring to Jesus being the son of man here in this text, we're like, how do you know it's Jesus yet? Well, we're going to keep reading the verses. You know, son of man is not the first time, this is not the first time that Jesus has been described in this way. Apocalyptic literature is represented in the Old Testament as well. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a a little bit. In Daniel chapter 7, for example, it's referred to as the Son of Man. We keep reading, and the imagery is drawn more sharply into focus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, "Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this: the seven stars are the angels and the messengers of the seven churches." And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we keep reading the text and we find, out. oh, well, here's an explanation for what the symbolism and imagery is meant to convey. He's saying, hey, I want you to write a letter to seven churches. So listen to what I'm about to tell you, and you're going to send this out to them. You know, God really, he really isn't a God of confusion. Sometimes we can make it that way. And, and Jesus, who is dead and now alive forever and ever, is telling John to write what he hears down to share will be attention-getting imagery for sure, but full of symbolism for the reader to draw in meaning from the source material. So here's the second thing, or really the third thing that we have to remember as as we're reading uh, Revelation. To understand Revelation, you have to listen to the text and the context. Not only are there going to be times when there's clarity from within the revelation as we read it, but there's source material from which John draws to convey this symbolism and imagery and messaging because Revelation is not the only place that we find apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Second half of Daniel, for example, the book of De- Zechariah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, and more places contain countless. Symbols and imagery—they have and contain apocalyptic literature as well. And much of what John is pulling from his source material is the Old Testament. He's referring to things that we we've read before, or, or maybe we haven't. And maybe that's kind of our problem with Revelation—is that we just aren't very familiar with the Old Testament because we think, "Well, that that's, that doesn't apply to us. That's back there." And in fact, this is where John is pulling a lot of his his text from. The less familiar we are with the Old Testament, the more of a disconnect we'll feel with the text. As you read Revelation, you come across descriptions of heaven and plagues and prophets and you'll find that there are direct connections and allusions to the Old Testament that John is making all along. Again, because his audience would be familiar with these things and they would recognize how they would apply to their lives. So we listen to the text because the text continues to deal with an ongoing cycle of humanity as we continue to read. The second half of that is the context. To understand Revelation, you have to understand the world in historical context. The world, as it was existing in that point of time, was the Roman Empire. That was it. And the Roman Empire was completely antithetical to the way of Jesus. In fact, Domitian, who was the emperor at the time, there's a little bit of quibbles about that, but we're not going to get too much into that, but it fits in with Domitian's reign a little bit more better than, than anybody else. Um, he had taken emperor worship to a whole different level. In fact, he erected huge, uh, a huge, like 27, 30-foot tall statue of himself on top of the temple that was supposed to celebrate all the gods, saying the gods are propping him up. Like, he loved to hear himself be called a Lord and King, like, hail to the Lord. He's Lord and God. Emperor worship was a thing in the Roman Empire. Uh, in fact... Part of that statue was a scroll in his hand that only he could open because of a description of all the glorious things that he had done. And it was sealed, and only emperor, the emperor was worthy to hold this scroll. So when we read Revelation chapter 5, for example, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. John is specifically saying something against All of the worship and all the glory that's being given to an earthly ruler versus the glory that should be given to our one and only king. The people that Revelation were originally written to, the Christians that were living in the Roman Empire, were struggling with how to live in a world where you were forced to worship the emperor to participate in society. If you wanted to go purchase something, for example, you go to the marketplace, the Agora, And that would have just about anything that you could possibly need or want. So um, modern-day equivalent, I'm going to say Costco, right? So if you need, you know, 40 pounds of steak and 800 batteries, like, that's where you go. You go to Costco and you've got everything, everything you need. In order to buy and sell in the Agora, you first had to participate in emperor worship. And then you signified that. You went and burned incense to worship the emperor, and to signify that, you would, you would mark yourself so people would recognize that you participated in that. So maybe smudge of ash on your forehead or on your hand. Um, does that start to sound familiar? Maybe some things that will come across in Revelation as we keep going. Some of you are familiar with it. Um, and, and so here, like we think about these future things that are happening that we have to be scared of, but... John's audience would be the seamstress who's now become a Christian who's taking fabrics, turning them into clothes, and whose livelihood is wrapped up in going to the marketplace and selling them. What does she do now? How does she live in this kind of environment? What, what do you do? Often we read Revelation looking for a map to the future, but Revelation addressed pressing issues for its original readers, and it does that for us today, too. To a people oppressed and persecuted for their faith, the words of Revelation addressed what they were living through and would produce hope for their present day, not produce uncertainty or fear about the future. John kind of introduces this in the way that he opens up the letter. So let's go back to verse one of chapter one. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. There's something, when we take to heart what's written in, what's written in it and what, what this means, there, there's something much deeper and richer for, for us. In these first few verses, the book of Revelation uses, uh, John uses these three words to describe what type of book it is. It's Revelation or Apocalypse. Is the word that's that's used there and that just simply means an unveiling a revealing of the disconnect sometimes that we feel between the physical and the spiritual this is giving us a divine perspective and so much of that is wrapped up into what it looks like to be a faithful follower of jesus is that even if we don't understand it the way that jesus calls us to live and interact with the world is from a divine perspective so even if we're, we're not, like, part of this is trust, right, that God knows better than we do. And this is a revelation. The apocalypse is an unveiling of, of this perspective, letting us look into this and, and interact with it and understanding. Um, the sec- second thing is, is John's just testifying to what he sees. It's a witness to what he sees God doing and participating. And he also calls the words of this prophecy. Most of the time we think about prophecy... You know, apocalypse, we think about you know zombies and the world ending. Uh, prophecy, we tend to think of predicting the future. That's not, it's not the definition of what prophecy is. That's the way that we think about it. But pr- the word actually means to speak for God. It's giving the message that God wants to share, especially warning about the consequences of rejecting God's way of life. Like we read through the prophets in the Old Testament, it, it's them speaking to the people of God and saying guys, if you don't listen to God, like you need to have a divine perspective because if you don't listen to God, things are not going to go well for you. It's not going to work out. And that's the ongoing cycle that is dealt with over and over and over again with, with humanity. The book of Revelation, again, it's an apocalyptic writing. It uses highly symbolic language to point people to spiritual realities behind the social and political situations of their time. And when we carefully consider the text and the context we'll see that this apocalyptic letter of John is less concerned with some of the things that get most of our attention. So it's less concerned with our current political enemies and allies. It's less concerned with a rapture. Um, Did you know the word rapture is not in your Bible, for example? Um, There's no fake-outs to Jesus' return, it's not like, a, oh, I was just kidding. I'm going to snatch some people here and snatch some people here. Um, that, like, that's, not, that's not a part of the focus of what this text is about. And, and the, the bumper stickers are cute, like in case of rapture, unmanned car. You know, like I, I get it. That's why, that's why you should wear clean underwear as well, just in case. Um, it's less concerned with an antichrist. For example, in fact, John tells us that there are more antichrists because what that means is anybody who leads us astray from Jesus is an antichrist. So we're not looking for like one particular person that's going to do. No, there have been many antichrists, and we get caught up in that because we don't pay attention to that. Um, it's less concerned with a physical earthly kingdom because Jesus says this: "My kingdom is not of this world." And when Jesus comes back, He's coming back to establish. Everything new, forever. And it's not even about a particular eschatological stance, eschatological meaning in times. It's not about whether or not you're amillennial, pre-trib, post-trib, premillennial dispensationalist, preterist, pan-millennial. Um, you can just go ahead and put those aside. I don't plan on even referencing those anymore as we continue to go through the text. Because the text doesn't <laughs> call us to one of those theologies. It's instead about one revelation. Please don't add an S, by the way. It's not revelations. It's just one revelation that reminds the church that God is already and still and will be on his throne and whose kingdom has come and whose will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John writes again in Revelation chapter 1, to seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. If we come away from Revelation being uncertain or scared or anxious about the future, then we have misread the text. As readers, our goal is to understand John's intended meaning, how his audience would have understood it, and what we do as a result. We might not get all the details, and that's okay, because we trust in the one who does. And we cannot miss the forest for the trees when we read this text, because it's too important, because the message of hope and encouragement to followers of Jesus is too important. I want you to keep in mind something. I want, to, I want you to keep in mind these things as we go through the through through the text and as you read it, hopefully this week and start going through it. There's three things, three pictures of Jesus that I want you to hold on to as we move through the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter one, Jesus, the depiction of Jesus that we read is 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 as a high priest walking among the churches. He is the way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In Revelation chapter five, Jesus is represented as a sacrificial lamb who is on the throne. The way of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is completely antithetical to empire because that's not how empire works. It is violence, it is oppression, it's seeking after power and authority, it's about money, it's about greed, it's about control. And yet what does Jesus do to establish his kingdom? He gives himself up for us, dies on the cross, resurrects, becomes a living sacrifice And he remains on his throne forever and ever. And the third picture of Jesus that we find is, we find this in Revelation chapter 19, not just here, but Jesus is a conquering king, and he's ready for battle. Sometimes we feel a disconnect between the spiritual and the physical, but there is none. It's it's all reality, and God continues to work in those things. And regardless of what we face in this life and what we go through, we can be hopeful and encouraged and recognized that God has these things under his control. In the Roman Empire at this time, Domitian led with, I mean, people did not like Domitian. They wrote about him afterwards. Domitian is just trash-talked continuously because he ruled with violence and oppression. He was the last of the, man, I'm gonna do this off the cuff and I'm probably gonna get wrong, but he's the last of the Flavian dynasty, if I remember correctly. I mean, nobody, nobody liked him because he ruled with violence and oppression. Christians were persecuted. They were not a part of the official you know, state gods. They, they were not recognized. And yet he is juxtaposed by John with our high priest, sacrificial lamb on the, on the throne, the conquering king, and, and who is really truly in control. And so one of the things that, repentance, that, that Revelation calls us to do is repent from our citizenship in the kingdoms of this world and recognize that God's kingdom is the one that is the one in power and control, and that we can trust and hope in that because we are part of a different kingdom. Despite the confusion and sometimes fear that can surround Revelation, when we read it well, there's one thing of which we can be certain. This letter provides one of the most powerful messages of hope and encouragement that we have in the Bible. It is the hope that is born out of knowing that the one who loves and freed us continues to sit on the throne, and his glory and power will reign forever and ever. And there's nothing that can take place on this earth that will keep us from the one who is from the one who was and the one who is to come. Let's pray. God, um, once again we just thank you for your word and we thank you for uh, the way in which it speaks into our lives. And, and what it looks like to not only be faithful followers of Jesus, but to look at the world in a, in a perspective that is different from anything that we will find on this earth to, to be able to see things from a divine heavenly perspective where you, you open up heaven and you let us see into the way that you see things and how you are taking care of things and God we just ask that you uh, continue to remind us that regardless of what's going on in the world around us um, that, that we have hope that, that you are in control, and that ultimately what, is, what we are heading to and what we're leading to is you making everything new. God, we praise you for this. We ask you to continually remind us of this perspective through your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.